Would you say that since Sublime Object of Ideology, 1989, 42 years ago, uh, have, have you had 32 years ago, have you, or 42, 42, have, has your yeah, thought sorry, evolved? Yeah. Has your thought evolved since then, would you say? Or do you think, no, it's been a kind of a straight, I've, I, I sort of laid out in Sublime Object what I think, and I've just developed that since that time. Uh, it's a, okay, I don't think I'm worthy of this to lose too much time on me, but I would say that it's a more complex tra trajectory before, because for some time, the first 20 years, I moved from this general mid-Lacan uh, approach of uh, symbolic order and the real is just a hole in the symbolic order. It's basically still the transcendental approach. We cannot step outside of the symbolic order and so on and so on. More towards all these different notions of the real and so on and so on. And now uh, even this fascination with the real in a Hegelian sense or way I'm trying to get out of it. That, that would be like first down, but then I think I came too close to some, almost I would say, too primitive materialism. And now I must admit it, it took me a long time to say bluntly, but here now I will return this point that I will make now. I will return it as a question to both of you. You said, Todd, and basically, and this was already a problem in a debate I had with you when we talked about your book. I want to give you a chance. Um, fair Stalinist, the condemnedist, has the right to make his point. But I really see a problem in this. Uh, namely, you told me, let's be frank here, back from Marx to Hegel. We are more Hegelians, really, and so on. I agree with it. But nonetheless, not because Marx was brighter or whatever, Marx's philosophical formulations are often incredibly naive and so on. Obviously, often he wasn't even aware of his own, of the implications of his own deeper insights. Because, for example, I always return to this notion of commodity fetishism, illusion which structures reality itself, and so on. But isn't it that ultimately Marx doesn't go to the end here? He basically still thinks that there is some positivity of, let's call it how he calls it, actual life process of metabolism, uh, humanity as part of nature, and so on and so on. So, uh, and this is one of the points where I do agree with Pippin, although he himself breaks his rules sometimes, namely Aristotle. No, I think both of you have written about it. I think that the price Marx pays already in his, I think one of his worst things he did, Economical Philosophical uh, Manuscripts, 1844, philosophically he regresses from Hegel, German idealism back to Aristotle. For him, uh, humanity, humans are like natural being with some positive potential. It's pre, pre, even pre-Cartesian. This idea of 
positivity and so on. Uh, so uh, uh, I think that, of course, here we should go back to Hegel. But I, my point is this one, that nonetheless, and you can see this clearly, what did Hegel see of modernity? He saw clearly the philosophical and theological revolution, Protestantism, Descartes, then subjectivity, journalism, negativity, blah, 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 uh, uh, Luther, and so on. And he saw French Revolution, the political revolution. But although he, Marx, sorry, Hegel, although he read Adam Smith, uh, uh, classics of political economy, and so on, and so on, it can be justified by the fact that simply because of stupid empirical historical limitation, he wasn't able to do it, but he really doesn't have a concept of capitalism, precisely a Hegelian concept. For Hegel, capitalism is still something that happens basically on the, at the level of interaction between partisan, uh, between, sorry, artisans, individuals selling their work, etc. The logic of proletarian as a commodity, selling and so on and so on. And here Marx did the Hegelian job in some sense. So here I think we have to return to Hegel, but through Marx. Marx saw clearly this radical novelty, which Hegel maybe should have been a little bit more attentive, because yes, at his time, it, it wasn't yet a full-blown capitalism, but remember, industrial revolution was already going on. Right. You know, in England and so on. Yeah. So here I see, and sorry, just think else. Another point, you insisted that nonetheless, in some sense, Hegel did it. It is the highest point we can reach about uh, thinking freedom and so on and so on. But I have a very naive problem here. It's, I am consciously stupid and simple now. But when Hegel says, you know, philosophy paints gray on gray, blah, 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 it's just uh, grasp a certain form of life which is already disintegrating. But doesn't this apply also to his thought? And I think, now coming to the crucial point, that it's too simple here to distinguish simply between Hegel's historical analysis, where you can say, of course, he couldn't have seen further, and his logic. I think it's too Kantian a solution to introduce this dualism that you say, of course, his philosophy of state politics is marked by his time, but what? But Hegel's logic is eternal. I wonder, and I wanted to ask you this because we debated when I visited your city Vermont place the last time. Don't worry, this is not racism because the real shithole is my country. <laughs> but what I wanted to say is that. Is that uh, what, uh, what I wanted to say is that, for example, if you still insist Hegel's logic is it, then basically you cannot move further. But this is, I'm consciously stupidly naive here. 
And it's not a rhetorical question. I want from both of you a real answer to it. It's so stupidly naive, but let's take two high points of 20th century science, the obvious ones, relativity theory, quantum physics. You think that you find in Hegel's logic categories that can fully cover the notions of causality and so on at work here? I doubt. So oh, if, oh, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. Get a reaction here as aggressive as possible. No, I agree with you, but but isn't it? I mean, it's not, it's, yeah. because you're the one who showed that actually Hegel anticipates quantum physics, and and and, and so I, I feel like there that that, that there's nothing. But be precise. Maybe I was bluffing. Be brutal. How do you think that Hegel anticipates quantum physics? Well, because just because he 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 sees the way in which the like the the way in which within the matter itself. There must be contradiction. And that's, I think, one of the, that's maybe the essential discovery of quantum mechanics. So I, I don't, I guess, I think you're right to say that if he was going to, he would have to rewrite the logic today to take into account the great yeah. movements yeah. Of, 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 of modern physics. I mean, biology is a different question, I think, because I'm not sure how. That's another question, because you know that some people like Milner, even think, but I'm not ready to follow them, that Lacan was too, too much under influence of Coare, this idea that modern science is mathematics, and also too much, then the later we were too much influenced by quantum physics and so on, which are all, also mathematical formula, but his idea is that the real revolution is now DNA, these letters are returning. I don't buy that. I don't think I that. I think that complex as it is, DNA analysis, neurology, can be simply covered by traditional categories. They don't really revolutionize Hegel's frame, you know. Right, right. I think that's absolutely right. So I think, but I do think you're right that you would have to rewrite the logic given the given the great discoveries of of the 20th century but i don't think that and here's what i would say i don't think that any any of there has been no discovery that has actually dislodged the notion of the of how he conceives the absolute idea so so for me that's absolutely here i totally agree so okay so for me that's the key thing and then about the political i i think you're absolutely right to say i mean i think it's a kind of a way that you know how in the past you would separate Hegel's system from his method? That was the classic Marxist thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think- Not so much Marx here. You must be careful. Uh, uh, unfortunately, although if anything, Engels was not, you know, you right. know the story I've written about it. The level of, like, let's put it in this way. Let's say that we take power right, and introduce democratic order with new gulags and so on, all that comes with it. And let's say that Hegel and Marx are still alive. I would make Marx a big theoretician, celebrated monument, but it's for pragmatic decisions. What to do politically and so on, uh, what is in, going on in real life, I would put Engels. Yeah. Do you remember, is it already published? I don't know. The text where I go into it, it's ingenious. This is for me, Engels at his best. You know that in 1882, Engels predicted not only in a letter, not only World War I, but World War II. 
I did you not. It's unimaginable. He said the way it's looking now, there will be an all European mega war. Germany against France, England on one side and Russia on another side. And then he qualifies further this predicate, 1882. <laughs> he says this will be a mega carnage. It will lead to around 10 million deaths. You know what is today the official number? Nine millions seven hundred thousand. It's incredible. And point two, it may lead to a revolution in Russia. And then, in another fragment, it's breathtaking. He writes, "But if Germany loses the war, around twenty years later, Germany may trigger another war of revenge." <laughs> so you know what I mean? Yeah. Underestimate angles. He have this incredible sense of uh, real uh, of pragmatism, but in the realist, noble right. sense. Right, so but I theoretically, think, theoretically, Engels is not... No, 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 no. Also, uh, again, this guy went in, but when he speaks about pure philosophy and all that stuff, no, although one thing is important, my professor of Marxism, when I was young, believe me or not, once I was young, who was a Frankfurt School Marxist, but with a sympathy for Engels. He said that, you know, this was a falsification when, uh, under Sta early Stalinism, 1925, I think, they edited uh, manuscripts on Engels and on natural sciences and gave the title dialectic of nature. You know that Engels never uses this. I know, term. he does. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah, I know. Only at that point, he says dialectic sozusagen, as if, so to speak, in right. nature. So it's totally wrong to see this as a kind of universalized uh, ontology and so on and so on, you know. But but uh, why did I go into this discussion? I will immediately give you the word, I'm sorry. Okay. Because you are right, because it's Engels in his Ludwig Feuerbach and the, it's not end, it's Ausgang, getting out of uh, 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 German idealism, uh, uh, he introduces this unfortunate distinction between Hegel's method and contingent, determinate, particular content, and so on. Right. So I don't want to. I'm not going to rely on that. Like I think, but my point about the Hegel's political structure, and I think you're, you know, Pippin says the same thing too about how you have to apply Hegel's own notion of the Owl of Minerva to his own understanding of. Yeah, but he himself doesn't do it. Oh, I know he end, doesn't. I know. But but what? But, but, in the end, he still belongs to what I call not yet their Hegelians. Right. The, right. the idea well, is that Hegel uh, had a vision of social freedom. We are not yet there. Right. Sorry, right, go right. on. Well, I also don't understand the role that mutual recognition gets for them because that doesn't play that part for Hegel at all. So it's a really, it's a fascinating kind of introduction of something. But and uh, of course, I, I say developed and we deve will develop much more in detail in this text that I, I did develop. It's not last year published. That uh, uh, for uh, uh, Hegel also, 
But both of you, I think I talked already, we agreed with both of you that for Hegel, recognition has this basic uh, element of resignation. Recognition is precisely the recognition that failures are necessary and so on and so on. It's not that we get over the trouble, we recognize each other and then it's peace or whatever. Right. Don't forget that Hegel's philosophy of right finishes with war, with <laughs> city of war and so on. Right. But you know where I would confirm this? It's very interesting Probably it is translated, but it would be nice if some of you would write the introduction to re-edit it. You know, which is Hegel's last text that he wrote a published essay. Yeah. His reaction to English, that uh, uh, new electoral law, where they expanded the Yeah, yeah. And you can see Hegel's panic there. He <laughs> saw something new coming, which basically ruins his vision of a rational state. And right. he was at a loss there. Right. I think that's right. And I think that, like, he couldn't sustain the notion. The, the estates is really so important for him in the philosophy of right. Like he can't, the notion of direct suffrage, he can't, he can't accept that. But so I agree with you that, that, that his, his way of understanding it, ha that we have to apply his own thought to his his political yeah. philosophy. But what I would say is, he's just trying. Isn't he? Isn't he? What he's trying to do is, and I think this is what he always tries to do. Let's understand what is real, and let's understand the actuality of what's going on, and then we can see. And and in that we will see the way in which there's some form of contradiction. And then I think that he thinks the figure of the monarch, which you've, I think, rightly defended, one of the only people, I think you were right to do that. Like, I think- I'm not, I'm not sure there is another idiot who publicly defended <laughs> this so often, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but, uh, here, but I'm sorry, please finish, yes. Yeah, so I, think, and so I think his notion is that the figure of the monarch is the point of contradiction within the structure and that we have to read whatever the subsequent structure is. We have to interpret it precisely in that same way. So I think all he's giving us really is a, is a way of making sense of what's there. Yeah. And I also, I've just but, but do you think that in a Hegelian way we can, because Hegel points about monarch is that, he is just a pure performative gesture. Exactly. He makes, he is, he is what Mike Pence decided to be, although Trump didn't want him to be. You know, his role was just to register, and Trump did something interesting from the Hegelian standpoint. It's like asking a king, like the Queen of England, Labour Party wants election, don't recognize it. <laughs> but this yeah. recognition is in parliamentary democracies, even if you have a king, it's, it's, it's a, a purely symbolic act of a ritual, you know. Yeah. It, okay, so what I want to say is that why not then? I think one can justify it in Hegelian terms. What about not instead of a king? at least a president, where you combine general election and lottery. This worked quite well for some time. Yeah. Because yeah. Hegel wanted the element of contingency. He right. said monarchies determined by 
by heredity and this is from the spiritual standpoint contingency. Stupid. No? Okay, but you know what they had in two models of limited, but nonetheless, within these limits, they tried to make it real democracy within these limits. Ancient Greece and uh, Venice. They combined lottery with qualifications. Uh, I quoted somewhere, like in Venice, how did they select uh, doors? It was madness. First, they had, I think, 100 candidates. And, but some committee went through so that you don't get an idiot at the end and eliminated 50. Among these 50, by lottery, they went down, I think, to 20. Then again, a committee, you know, so that they tried to, I wonder to what extent it worked, but uh, I think that there must be, at least for the top of the power, an element of this type of lottery contingency. Monarch was Hegel's lottery. I, I agree with that, and I think his wasn't his notion, and I think this is absolutely a contemporary idea, yeah. It's precisely the contingency of this figure on the top that yes. saves us from the fascist, the risk of fascism. Yes. I think yes. Yes. a I fascist think, leader is a figure of fate. That Hitler would yeah. never have said, oh, it could have been another guy. <laughs> right, and right, unfortunately, right. Stalin also not. I That's know. the problem with so-called totalitarianism. They want their reign to be grounded in their actual or whatever real qualities. And here, I think it's that Israeli friend of ours, Yuval Kremnitzer, who made this, uh, 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 this nice point that you want rule of experts and you end up with Donald Trump. That's right, that's right. No. <laughs> University discourse where there is no figure of the master, just Experts rule and tell us, science tells us this is to be done, economists tells us that. And then you got a, a figure like Trump who elevated his totally contingent personally, personal idiosyncrasies, eccentricities, and so on into, like, he was, he didn't claim Big Other speaks through him. He often acted as if he is the he is the big other, I know. And also, I think it's really important that he is is explicitly against the expert, right? Like that's like he 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 made he made uh, he, made, uh, he made Fauci the expert his foil. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's you know like I think that's a, a key to the appeal of a figure like him or like Mussolini. I totally agree with you. Here I don't agree with otherwise very good text. Did you read it? I know when it was published by that. I respect him, strange figure, but I mean, very, do you know Warren Montag, who is oh, a yeah. Spinoza Hegelian? Yeah. As a Spinozian, he wants to also integrate Hegel, and he wrote a text uh, where he said that, okay, this coup attempt last week was more uh, travesty, not serious, but he said it may return that we were lucky, that's how he put it, that we had on the top a figure who is ridiculous with cognitive dissonances like Trump. What if next time it will be a much more serious? But these cognitive dissonances are the base of Trump's success. Yeah, I know, I know. I think the point is, yeah, 
Yeah, I think that I think that, and you know what? It's interesting because you know this. The, I think you've played out this game before. Like, do you kill Hitler in his as a child? Because what if actually Hitler was not as bad as someone who yeah, had yeah, been smart yeah, enough yeah. not to invade yeah, Russia? But yeah, yeah. I think isn't it crucial to realize that the stupidity of the totalitarian so so called leader yeah. is crucial to their success. It's not like you can have a smart version. Of Trump, who would be more successful? Absolutely, the stupidity. But you know what? Maybe Trump was a little bit stupid at another level. You know what? Bright totalitarians know how to do that. Secretly, at least intimately, they know their limits and they know how to put the right people around them. For example. The greatest thing, but we paid the price of it because of this. There were at least two, three millions more people dead, and work were too dragged for. Was for Hitler, I think. <laughs> end of '42, Stalingrad, and so on. He nominated Albert Speer, who was an administrative genius, right. the Minister of Defense, and gave him real full power. You know what Speer accomplished in '44. With all bombings and so on, German industrial arms production was at its highest point. He did miracles without spare. World War II would have been absolutely over, at least in the middle of '44. So you know, and some people told me, unfortunately, that who are not pro Ronald Reagan, that even Reagan had some of this. He knew to put the right people around him. Trump wasn't very strong here. Because look at Mike Pence, Pompeo, especially Pompeo and so on, you know. Yeah. Well, they just they just said to, they just, you know, the transition Biden's transition team just revealed today that they had absolutely no plan for for the COVID vaccination rollout. So ah. Russell, yeah. now that you are there, I will quote you respectfully. <laughs> you sent me a message where I will simply quote you as a private, a private conversation and so on. You know where you developed this, uh, reactualized the old stuff that we all knew, but fuck it, you got it, you applied it. it <laughs> no? Now, how this uh, theft of enjoyment and carnival, this is it here. No? That you cannot understand the the uh, capital thing without these categories. And you know, uh, Russell, how complex, I then try to analyze it a little bit. Uh, uh, this goes because it's on, on both ways. These uh, uh, Trumpist protesters, they at the same time feel life is being stolen from them. And by life, they mean, of course, their upper middle class way of life, uh, uh, we socialize the guns, uh, we know the way of life, yeah. but at the same time, you have this envy of this is an element of racism. How the other has some secret modes of enjoyment, you know, yeah. the obsession, the Jews have some secrets, and so on. And I think without taking into account this, this reference and this reference to carnival, you know, uh, you cannot really understand. I'm not saying it's not extremely dangerous. Ah, incidentally, maybe, because you know who uh, convinced me that things are dangerous here, nonetheless, in the long term. Uh, 
It was not Warren Montag, another guy, I forgot who I quote him in some, some new text of mine, where he said that, did you read this, that they made an analysis, opinion poll among uh, uh, Republican Party members, congressmen, and so on. They asked them immediately after Capitol events a simple question. Do you agree with what the protesters did, violently disband the Congress? You know that... Uh, 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 almost half of them were for. Right. So going yeah. the base, you know that you have now, if you extrapolate this, in United States, about 30 million people who are politically so radical in the right wing sense that they are ready for a violent coup d'etat to restore the true voice of the people and so on and so on. It's amazing. But still, I think. Sorry, let's go on. Yeah, yeah, let's go on. Because so I want to just come back to this philosophy of right question. So, so so don't could you say this? Could you say that the very way he structures the book, that is, placing the state as placing civil society, like he he understands capitalism as civil society, right? Like that's his term for for it. So so by placing the state outside of civil society isn't he isn't isn't that itself a kind of radical critique of the liberal conception of freedom and the the whole liberal political ideal like isn't he by giving the state the final structural yeah. word like yeah. isn't that his because i think he's not an idiot he would have known right that Actually, civil society by that time had already outstripped the state. So, I mean, right now there's this whole, this whole, oh, we're so worried about state power. But of course, it's it's the it's the power of capital that's much more of a danger. And I think didn't Hegel recognize that? So, so structuring the philosophy of the right in the way that he did by making the state this yeah. break on civil society yeah. isn't that already a way yeah, of but- isn't it already? You know, how can you avoid here the uh, the fa- we must mention also here the fact that the radical right agrees here with Hegel, but from their position they say, of course, liberal Jewish capitalism, civil society, it must be dominant. You know, you can also give a right wing uh, uh, spin. To no, I agree, but but I think that I don't think that Hegel does that. I mean, his like his. Throughout the twenties, he would like his whole opposition, like his whole private political intrigue at the University of Berlin was against, was supporting left wing students against these right wing nationalist professors, and and I think he, like his, I, I would just say he's consistently against this right wing nationalism. No, 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 you are totally right here. Here, although I hate to, I don't like Goethe, and I hate this elevation of big geniuses of this time, you know, like the ultimate orgasm, Hegel meets Goethe, what did they talk about, no? But uh, both were already at that time suspicious of these dangers of German nationalism. Yes. They both, in Goethe, I forgot where in some of those uh, talks with Eckermann, uh, uh, he saw, although it was often meant in this democratic way, people, he saw the horrifying dimension in it, you know. Yeah. So I think that, that, uh, that uh, 
this is the unique Hegel's position that he thought he saw he saw the danger, but as you know, the problem is here estates, you know, because estates right. at the same time civil society, that self-organization, productive, but at the same time with the other food in the state already, you know. Yeah. So for Hegel, the okay, apart from police, I like. Hegel's thought on police. Ah, speaking about this is in my new text. I hope you both will love it. You know, when, when uh, Pippin and those guys uh, praise uh, reconciliation, no? Yeah. But reconciliation for Hegel is just not that. Also, the judge should recognize its own complicity that you cannot simply blame just the other, that when you have a heavy crime, you must ask, but aren't we implicit in it? We cannot simply judge it from outside. Okay, uh, uh, my point is here, but never forget it. For Hegel, how do you reconcile with the criminal? By killing him. Death penalty is reconciliation. Right, right. And even, and he didn't, I mean, what's, he even thought that the criminal, I mean, he. this is absolutely central to his thinking, I think, that yeah. that the criminal actually wills their own punishment, right? Like the punishment yeah, is actually it's included yes, you in the crime. Him in, in an honorable way as a free being and so on. And this is even ironically, God bless my unfortunate Bolsheviks, confirmed, I told already a couple of times through this story, you know, the story of radicals coming to power, first thing they bombastically uh, abolish death penalty. And then, of course, usually a couple of months later, they start killing the enemies. And, you know, Bolsheviks did this. They immediately abolished death penalty. And then at the beginning of the civil war, they got some arrested, some white generals, defeating them and killed them. And then the whole Western Europe, social democrats, liberal leftists were horrified. But didn't you say that, but didn't you abolish death penalty? Uh, they got the answer of a lifetime. You know, what was the official answer? This was not that punishment. This was just a military preemptive measure. <laughs> prevent you. This is not Sorry, but we are ignoring you, Strike. Well, I was I was gonna ask if we could if we could go back to if we could try to bring things to Hegel's ontology. Um, uh-huh. because and this is kind of selfish because I'm I'm trying to work on this response to uh, that Graham Harmon wrote to our to our collection that you and I edited, Slava, but that Todd has a has a piece in. And what made me think of it was when we were talking about the figure of the monarch and philosophy of right, because yeah. I've been thinking about infinite judgment and you know state as monarch. And I just I think I am trying to rethink Hegel through almost the entirety of Hegel through infinite judgment, but. Yeah. The question that I wanted to pose to the two of you is because the the main thing that that Harmon uh, goes after us for is he claims that our like Lacano Hegelian position is is an idealism, almost of like like a Barclayan idealism, and he's it, there's no he says we have no business calling it, it materialism, and I'm basically going back and forth between distilling what we mean by materialism to contradiction and um 
and contingency. And yeah, contingency and, is crucial. Yeah. I think materialism, sorry, please finish. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. No, no, I was, I was just going to say which, which of the two, because I think Todd would say, and I'm kind of, I might be in agreement that that contradiction would be the sort of, and I don't mean this necessarily, like the master signifier to use for, uh, you know, as a shorthand for, uh, for, for materialism. Alenka uh, Zupancic even makes this point that in, in what is sex, that a definition of materialism would be that depending upon the subject is a being that makes contradiction available to thought. But I'm wondering if, you know, if, Contra- like where, with regard to contradiction, um, contingency comes in? Because I don't think they're two names for the same thing, but they're related. I, I uh, yes, I. This is a very good question. First, I would say that uh, that, uh, uh, and you thought so this very nicely that you know often with old school Marxist up to Mao Zedong who emphasize contradiction, if you look at it closely, it's not really a contradiction. It's simply this pre-modern mythic universe of conflict of opposites, you know. Like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, in Mao Zedong, it's class struggle, one class against the other, you know. Or with this Jungian anthropologist, uh, male principle versus the feminine. Hegelian contradiction is absolutely not this. That's why when Lacan says there is no sexual relationship, he doesn't mean men are from, uh, uh, I like to turn it around, men are, and that's our unfortunate experience, men are from Venus, women are from Mars. (laughs) 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 So uh, uh, it's not this, one has to be very precise, and what I try to develop is that this is the only thing, Russell, I can answer now to you, is that uh, where I see the connection between contradiction and contingency is that uh, uh, point that I'm repeatedly making is that uh, 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 usually in classical Marxism and so on, it's what you quoted, Todd, that idea of, you know, if not Hitler, then another guy. They see the dialectic of, of uh, contingency and necessity in this term. History has a general necessity, but it's re- like history needed to contain the crisis, some kind of fascist dictatorship. But it was historical contingency that Napoleon, sorry, uh, that Hitler came. I said Napoleon because... Plekhanov, the father of dialectical materialism, uses the example of Napoleon here. The uh, French Revolution had to end up in some kind of empire, new authoritarian order. It was a contingency that, uh, that Napoleon was the guy. What I think is that uh, it's not just that necessity actualizes itself in contingency. It's, and here I try to get closer to to a quantum physics lesson is that city is not determined in advance. We have an open contingent situation and which tendency retroactively becomes a necessity, it's in itself contingent. That the ultimate contingency is 
an elevation of some contingency into necessity. That's why you must know this. I eternally uh, quote again and again that Dupuy thought, who uh, refers to that wonderful passage from Le Monde, that if Balladur, a French politician 20 years ago, will win next election, if he will win, his victory will be necessary. I think this is a nice example of a proper dialectical contradiction. You don't say just a contradiction tension between necessity and contingency. No, you say that you must introduce this self-relating, that the way necessity arrives out of contingency is in itself basically uh, is... uh, Contingent. Second thing, and I think we all agree here, let's, when we say materialism, let's forget about that stupidity of, you know, this primitive representation, empty space and some small parts of matter just going around there. I mean, I am, and Frank Ruda, I don't always agree with him, but he wonderfully developed this I think, isn't the, the title of one of his book, Materialism Without Matter, or I don't know what you know, that uh, I'm here ready to go to the end. There is no matter in this sense. There can only be abstract waves, oscillations, whose nature is purely formal, immaterial, mathem- mathem- uh, formulated in mathematics. But the crucial thing is the radical contingency, in the sense that not in the sense that there is no necessity, but in the sense of, you know, which example I like to use for, of actual contradiction. Also, it's not even a true contradiction. Let's take the pandemic, no? Let's say it will be much more serious and almost ruin us. Of course, in itself, it's necessary. Necessary in the sense that if we analyze it, we see that Nothing did happen that would violate natural laws and so on. But nonetheless, from the standpoint of human history, it's contingent. It doesn't necessarily express any deeper social tendency. It just happens, again, from our standpoint, something totally meaningless. Which is why when people ask me what they mean by materialism, I say virus. That's why, of course, we should analyze its historical conditions uh, uh, connected with global capital, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, there is no deeper message in it, in the sense of it's a warning of mother nature and so on and so on. That's why that would be, for me, contingency and contradiction. Yeah, I think that's really good, but I I wonder why, do you think it's necessary to 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 cling and insist on the signifier materialist? I just, I wonder about that. I mean, what, what, what's it's, that it's more that there is no global teleology, theology, teleology is always a backwards, retroactive teleology. This is the reason I still cling to this term. Idealism is for me not so much ideas. I'm for my formula would have been materialism of ideas. Okay, you know? okay. Like, <laughs> as yeah, yeah. Dolar pointed out, Already in Democrate, he always compares atoms with letters. And he says in the same way that letters are combined in words and so on and so on. So for me, what matters is just this contingent blindness, out of which retroactively then 
necessity, uh, sorry, necessity or meaning or whatever emerges. Because this, this would be one reason. And because I, I think would, again, this is hidden in Hegel when he says, "Let's not philosophize about the future." We right. Can I mean, right. I mean, in certain way, that's the most materialist statement of all, right? Hegel's saying like the owl of Minerva takes flight with only the falling of dusk. I I, th I think that's right, but I want to say to Marx is here more idealist than Hegel. No, no, no question. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry, more, more idealist. Yeah, yeah, more yeah. idealist. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. But but I would just say I, my, my, my question always was like, doesn't Hegel and this this gets to why I want to insist on neither idealism or materialism, because doesn't Hegel miss the way in which there's always a fantasy of the future written in to my analysis of the actual situation. And then isn't that the stake of enjoyment in the way in which, in what's happening. So like, I think that, I think the problem, I guess, with, with a, yeah. this is my problem with all Marxist analysis is that yeah, yeah. By, by being materialist, it writes, the enjoyment factor out of it. And then like, just like we were analyzing this storming of the Capitol, yeah. like it's, it's totally driven by enjoyment. It's not driven by the objective material conditions of those people doing the storming, because I think our immediate reaction was, Oh, these, this is the white working class, blah, blah. But then it turns out it wasn't the white working class. It was the, it was the white bourgeoisie basically. And so no, it's pure surplus. Yeah. So, right. It's surplus. So it's so, so, so it's enjoyment that's driving it. And I think, I guess for me, I don't see how materialism accounts. Yeah, but why not? Why, why is for you enjoyment, not a materialist uh, category? I think that, if anything, Marx, in his notion of humanity, counted too much on, this is sound so naive as if I'm defending some irrationality, but he was counting too much of behind every passion and so on, there must be class interest in the rational sense. You really know what are your interests. No, enjoyment. Absolutely, okay. yes. And I think I will go even a step further to your bourgeois anti-Marxism joining you. I would say that it's because of this missing the dimension of enjoyment and so on that Marx wasn't able to see or, okay, it would have been too difficult for him to predict it, but even to get a, a hint of the complications and terrifying consequences possible of a socialist revolution. Right. How you go, for example, uh, uh, it's clear even Fred Jameson, who wants to be materialist everything, says this very nicely, you know that. We will see what real problems are in communism. There will be real problems. Envy will be a mega problem and so on. So I, I totally agree and that's why Immediately, I give you the word. Before uh, I finish, I think that maybe another volume to do would have been. Do you know that uh, it's this year or in two years or one from now? Do you know that we will be celebrating? I think it's next year, twenty-two. Did even some of you told me this? The one hundred years of Freud's mass psychology of the crowds. Right. And this is very important because 
Freud was dealing precisely there with this problem, crowd formation means collective shared enjoyment and so on. And you know what is so important here? Ah, you know, I often don't agree with him, but he did a good text, uh, the, the Rise of the Superego, Etienne Balibar on this, mm. where he shows that how, you know that, and I think he had a point, you know who was Hans Kelsen, the big German liberal left, moderate left, neo-Kantian theorist of law. And he answered critically, but in a friendly way, to Freud's crowd psychology. His point is that what Freud was describing there is not the constitution of society in the sense, I'm already introducing Lacan's terms here, of the big other uh, global symbolic order within which we function and individuals, but that Freud really describes uh, something which is at least measured by the normal standards of bourgeois life, uh, a pathological formation. Freud can deduce this from all this game of affective identification, but uh, where does the idea of a legal order which confirms us as free individuals, where does it come? Then Freud tried to answer it in a very complex way, but I think he didn't fully succeed. Freud's point was that how the law, the rule of law, grabs us, how can we internalize it? it you must presuppose the guilt feeling based on the unresolved Oedipus and so on and so on. That, you know, the way the subject can be, can submit itself to the rule of law in this classical Althusserian sense that you are a subject in the sense of free individual, but at the same time subject in the sense of subjected to public power and so on and so on. This is, I think, uh, 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 a very good point that Balibar made there. Sorry, I've talked too much. No, 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 that's okay. So, so I, I, so again, so you, so for you though, enjoyment is materialist. That's so that, that, but again, not in this primitive sense that there are some small atoms floating yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess, I guess I, ah, you know what I like, sorry, here I will tell you, yeah. but it's nonetheless enjoyment, not organic spontaneity. Now I am uh, watching, I must uh, uh, advise you to do it. Uh, I'm returning to my not really youth. The hits were 20 years ago. This German hard rock band, Rammstein, you know. And they have a wonderful song with the title Dalai Lama. I thought it's some Buddhist bullshit. No. <laughs> the title ironically refers to the fact that Dalai Lama was afraid to fly, to take flights, plane, yeah. to take a plane. Okay, so this is a scene. Father and son are visiting. Uh, his husband and the boy's mother, and they are nicely on a long flight. Then God of the winds up there says, this shouldn't happen. People shouldn't enjoy flights. They don't belong to the sky. And sends causes a strong storm. And you know who is the figure of Dalai Lama here? Uh, it's uh, the father himself, because he, when he sees that the son is his anxiety, he wants to protect the son and holds him tightly. And then the storm passes, it's over, 
the plane doesn't crash, but the father unintentionally uh, wow. cut off the breathing and killed mm. the son. There is a nice critique here that maybe the way Buddhism wants to protect us from Christ, but you know what I like here, that the basic motive behind it is, like in German it sounds so nice, uh, uh, vorwärts, vorwärts, verderben, wir müssen leben, bis wir sterben. They say, forward, forward, towards destruction, and now it's a wonderful formula. This is the basic pessimist message. We must live till we die. But making living not organic, to go on living is a horrible duty, you know. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Must be, we must live till we die, because uh, they, Rammstein said here the exact opposite of what one would have expected, which is, okay, we can enjoy living, but at the end we have to die. That's not a problem. The problem is that you must live before you right, die. Right. No, I think that's really good that you have to, there has to be a way to wrench the idea of life out of the immediacy uh, in which yeah. it's usually understood. Yeah. I think that's right. That, that, that typically life is understood as this immediate, I get, I, 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 I escape from all the mediated world back into my bare life. But I think there's no, I wonder if that's the problem with this concept of the Musulman, like that, that there is a such thing. I, I've, I've been thinking more and more that Agamben's whole, I mean, his response to the pandemic has been terrible, but, but I think his whole way of thinking of some notion of bare life is just un... I, I just think that's impossible, that there has to yeah, be... Yeah, I totally agree. Because that's what one you It's cannot, the same as me, but you, although they are opposed, but you will speak with this uh, uh, human-animal life, it doesn't exist. Right. This is a secondary right. problem. Where is it? Where is but it? But you think that we are at some basic level human animals, and then from time to time a miracle happens, and so right. on you Right, right. Event. Yes. Yeah, that right. Like for Badu, he's too private about the event. Like the event, there have to be if the if the event is what makes us human, there have to be there ha it has to be happening all the time and there but do any of you do God and you Russell have an idea he always he but you when I talked with him, he always avoided this I mentioned it somewhere in my reading about you this Totally stupid, brutal question. Okay, let's say that you as an individual at the same time are caught in two events, both absolutely identical. Deep event of love, personal love and political engagement. But let's say that there is the conflict between the two. Like, let's say your love object, woman, whoever uh, wants you be safe, stay with me. How do you, how do you do with the interaction of events? And yeah, you can't. There's no way to answer. You know, you know that's so fascinating. You brought that up because, you know, Sartre in existentialism is a humanism. Yeah. He presents exactly this problem. Like you're yeah. called between serving in the resistance or yeah. staying with your love yeah. object, which do you yeah. decide? And his point is there's nothing to help you make the decision. So I think it's interesting. Uh, but do you know my solution? You remember I wrote about it somewhere. My solution is you say to the resistance, I have to stay with my parents. You say to your parents, I have to fight for resistance and you do neither, but, but go to a small cabin in the countryside and <laughs> I think that's what Sartre did actually during the yeah, war. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
So I want to, I, we're about ready to be done, but I want to, I want to maybe ask you a question about books on Hegel because people always ask me this question and, and I, I, I'm usually kind of struggle for an answer. And so excluding your own, what would you say, this is for us and you, what would you yeah. say is the, you think the best book on Hegel? Oh. All time ever. Excluding your own. They, no, I mean, you can include them. There are still others research <laughs> better. But I never thought in these terms, incidentally, this is not directly about Hegel, although she mentions Hegel. Did any of you read, it found quite an echo in France. It's not, as far as I know, yet translated into English. I don't agree with the basic thesis. But, but it's interesting. Catherine Malabou's new book, uh, 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 clitoris and the thought. I haven't read it. The idea is this one that we have this male chauvinist symmetry, penis, vagina, hole complementing each other, but that clitoris is that part of autonomous feminine enjoyment, which this that clitoris is feminine, abs, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, anarchist, and so on. I find this solution too simple, but on the other hand, it does touch something. Does Lacan, I don't remember, have a theory of clitoris? I don't think so. I don't remember ever. I know in biology, there is a great problem. Usually they dismiss it as it's a kind of a thwarted in its development penis, you know. Right. Uh, the same way we men have breasts, at least nipples, Women have a clitoris, no? But even with feminine orgasm, it's a problem because main, male orgasm, okay, to push out the sperm. And they try to speculate to suck in the sperm, but it doesn't really work, you know? No, I, I would like to do something. I would like to follow her, but totally discard this simple anarchist feminist read think there the women have their own space and so on and so on you know yeah. and uh, kind of re-read re turn it around in a hegelian way but you would not say her you would not say the lavenir de hegel you would not say that's the best book written on hegel i don't think that one is not bad the, the previous one hegel and the future or what yeah yeah that's what but i'm talking no, about no no i don't know how about Although this one it's critical of hegel yeah i still like that the second uh, Gerard Lebrun, not translated into English. Oh. The, the, the Nietzsche Hegel dialect yeah, yeah, yeah. the title. That one is good, but it's basically a Nietzsche critique, critique. of Hegel. Yeah. But tell me, the two of you, what Here's would what you I, here, yeah, what I would say? say, I mean, I'm, I'm not just sucking up to you, but I would say less than No, nothing. no, no, it's prohibited. Okay, prohibited to say you. To, I mean, to mention any of our names. Okay, here's what I would say. I would say Gillian Rhodes. Hegel contra sociology. Yeah, that's still, still my fucking answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best one. He did uh, cultural appropriation of you, basically. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I also that one is good. Yes, I think uh, that he was really bright. Yeah. But you know that at the end she converted when okay when she was dying. No, she, yes, yes. she 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 returned to to. Uh, to, not to Catholicism or even to Catholicism. I know she was very friendly. She, uh, uh, Gillian Rose. There were even talks that there was something 
uh, between the two of them. I know they know each other, but you know, <laughs> I mean, Rowan Williams. Oh, Rowan Williams, yeah. yeah. He relatively, not relatively, he is intelligent and so on. He's very good, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. very good. So, yeah, so I mean, yeah, yeah, that one would definitely, I always list that one. Then Beatrice Longanes wrote a book, Hegel et la Critique de la Metaphysique. Very and good. later she got lost into some more Kantian stuff. Of, she became uh, a Kantian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's very good. I think, um, I think that, I, I, I don't know, I feel like Kojev, even though he, he distorted I'm a lot. I'm now more and more perplexed, intrigued by his later work. Yeah. Everybody focuses so much on that uh, 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 st uh, struggle, life and death, and so on and so on. Okay, against Judith Butler and so on, he makes an important point because Judith Butler really thinks that Hegel's lesson is conflict doesn't work. Right. We need mutual recognition. No, Hegel's lesson is exactly the opposite one. Only through conflict do you get there. Right. Right. You know, right. and then at the end, there is no happy life. Hegel defines history as the as the calvary of the spirit, where right. the, the 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 bones of the spirit, all the wounds are. Ah, you know what about her? And I uh, 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 I don't know if I'm uh, pronouncing her name, but he did a very good text on. Hegel, Marx, and the notion of critique. Does the name Rocio Zambrana tell you anything? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she did a text on Hegel and critique, claiming in a very nice anti-Habermasian way that Hegel doesn't, that Hegel precisely shows the repeated failure of any figure of life, but without presupposing a set standard, like this is the right. true reconciliation, and finally we come to that, to that. And in a very intelligent way, he, he reads, proposed a reading of what Hegel's critique means, avoiding this transcendental Habermasian argument. You know, this is the basic argument of Habermas against Adorno and Horkheimer. Right. It's just negative dialectics, but they implicitly presuppose some positive standards, you know. So I don't know yet. I haven't, I've ordered it yet, her other books, but I think there is some hope that she would come close to it also. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah. yeah. Also, she's also politically wrote a lot about uh, uh, colonialism, racism, and so on and so on, but not in the stupid, I hope, uh, politically correct uh, way, you yeah. know. All right, I think we can stop. That's, uh, that's a good no. It was really nice, and it wasn't as horrifying as I thought. But Russell, you determine next time. I feel bad. I talk too much, and uh, me and uh, Todd have stolen. How we, uh, uh, would you determine the topic? What did you say that you are doing exactly this universalization of universalization, uh, uh, infinite judgment as the key? You know. Well, okay. I mean, I mean, I I came through it specifically through. I, I've been reading all the all this stuff on Hegel and the Sublime, and a lot of it's not very good. And I think that the way in which to understand uh, Hegel and the Sublime was through Infinite Judgment. And I mean, Slava, you actually you gesture toward yes, that I, in in yeah. Sublime Object of Ideology, but but I'm increasingly thinking that 
that first, you know, um, not only is substance, but also a subject. I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that all of these, you know, standard crucial Hegelian lines can be framed through, through infinite judgment, but I haven't yeah, developed, I haven't I developed it yet. I haven't really you fully should, developed You it. should, because I have, this is one of the new things that I have in my text that I just finished long one on Hegel. Uh, I will not, this is just like a teaser, like I will not go into details, but there is, you know, you were too, you are too young both, but maybe when you were younger, you saw some of them, those Columbo detective series, no? Oh, well, yeah. Columbo, Peter Pan, yeah. yeah. One of them, I used to explore this notion of infinite judgment, because you know what happens is the crucial one. I think the last one of season six or seven, you know what is Columbo about? He breaks the rule. You know, from the beginning, we all know Columbo knows who is the criminal, no? And the whole game is just how he will catch the criminal, make him confess. <coughs> but there is one, I think the last of season six or seven, I forgot, where something absolutely strange happens. The same game, Columbo knows, blah, blah, blah. Then, two-thirds into the show, the alleged murderer gets killed. And then Columbo, to get out of this, regresses to Agatha Christie model. Uh, collects all the group of suspects and plays, you know, like in the final moments in Agatha Christie. Yeah. And so it is as if my formula didn't work. Let's return to <laughs> the origins from what I was... But the genius is that he admits that this is his lowest point. Because at the end, then, it was meant to be the end of the whole series. Because at the end, he says, I will no longer do this uh, work. I want to be on a vacation. We have some money and takes a small boat and joins with his wife, joins his wife who is waiting for him, uh, a big liner or whatever, uh, a ship. And so it is as if he reached the end of his formula, everything goes wrong and so on. And I was quite shocked. Then I went on uh, uh, on Wikipedia and so on and noticed immediately that there were texts written. They tried uh, to... Was that really the last episode? Sorry? Was that really the last episode? You know how you, how you can find it if you are interested. Go to Google and put Columbo. I think it's old, the word Commodore. C-O-M-M-O-D-O-R-E. And, uh, the last Commodore, goodbye to Commodore. If you put Colombo and Commodore, these two words, you will get it immediately. But it, but it, didn't, but it didn't end up being the, it didn't end up being the last episode. Was it the last episode? No, it was the end of the season, they thought. Uh, and okay. then for one or two years, but uh, after that, they started it again, but it didn't really work. Oh, they were doing like the movie. Like the a movie. couple of them which are good. Basically, the formula died. Hmm. Yeah, that's, inter- that's, that's, that's interesting. So listen, did you hear, Russell, next time when you will have something more, please yeah. do what I asked you for the sake of all of us. 
when you will have uh, some uh, idea draft of this text, you know, you I should will. send it. You know why also? So that if there is some good idea, I will steal it from you and then you know my usual stuff. There will be a small footnote. After I finish this text, I discovered that my friend Russell <laughs> had a similar idea. <laughs> it was too late. It was too late to incorporate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. yeah. It's basically. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was already to press when I saw this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So have a nice time.